Welcome, and thank you for listening to this presentation, hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, United Kingdom, a Center for Catholic Theology in the Public Academy. For more information, visit our website at www.centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following lecture was presented in June 2019 at the New Song Conference, Biblical Hebrew Poetry as Jewish and Christian Scripture for the 21st Century. The conference was organized in partnership by the Center for Catholic Studies, the Durham University Center for the Study of Jewish Culture, Society, and Politics, and Ashaw College. This lecture was given by the Rev. Dr. David Firth, Tutor in Old Testament and Academic Dean at Trinity College, Bristol, and is entitled Hannah's Song, 1 Samuel 2, verse 1 to 10, on the interface of poetics and ethics in an embedded poem. Uh, let me uh, begin just by thanking the organizers for giving me the opportunity to come and to share and to speak with you, uh, especially because they're having to fit me in uh, knowing that I'm uh, leaving tomorrow morning but uh, just really grateful for the opportunity to come and to share and, and grateful to look out and see so many people who've uh, made the effort to come and share in this. So uh, thank you to you all. I'm, I'm particularly interested in uh, how we deal with texts that have often been regarded as secondary and what they're actually doing within their context. So that's some of the background to this. Because that Hannah's prayer stands apart from the material around it in Samuel, I think is obvious to most readers. As a clearly poetic text, it's unlike the prose which surrounds it. And although much of the preceding chapters has taken place in the temple at Shiloh, nothing has prepared readers for the clearly elevated language that we quite suddenly find here. Indeed, Hannah's earlier prayer, though evidently passionate, was apparently offered silently, triggering Eli's misinterpretation of her actions. But here, she not only prays, she speaks something stressed by the prayer's introduction, which combines verbs for prayer and for speech. Now, although prayed and said might sound clumsy in English, and uh, I was skimming through several English versions today and noticed how many of them decided that one of them would suffice, um, nonetheless, the combination is relatively common in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, but within this narrative, the combination of verbs, I think, is given special focus because of the narrative's previous observation that Hannah had prayed silently, meaning that the presence not only of spoken prayer, but a prayer which is in elevated language is given special prominence. None of this takes away from the fact that the prayer, as we currently have it, has been placed into the existing narrative, something evident from the fact that were the prayer to be removed, it's doubtful that anyone would have missed it. Indeed, although 1 Samuel 2.11 can now be read as what happened after Hannah had prayed, it would follow equally well if it came immediately after 1 Samuel 1.28, closing off the paragraph that reported the family's arrival at the temple in 1 Samuel 1.21. So with most scholars, I think it's right to recognise the distinctive nature of this poem within its current context. But it's also important in a final form reading of Samuel, which is what I'm attempting here, to give heed to this text Though to do so by denoting the effect of it being placed here. That is, I want to adapt Randall Bailey's approach, and we must ask why would a compiler include a piece which clearly does not develop the narrative in the sense of exploring the plot, 
at this point. Now, to some extent, uh, an answer was already given to this by Brevard Child. I've got in my paper that he argued, I think intuitive might be a slightly better um, way of presenting it there, that this poem, along with those in the Samuel conclusion, uh, some people still want to call it the appendix, they're wrong, but if they want to do that, that's their choice, uh, provides a hermeneutical key by which we are to read Samuel from a theocentric perspective. And this points to the fact that Hannah's prayer is intentionally placed in the text at this point. And though it might be separated on little literary critical grounds as coming from a different source to the main narrative, that doesn't mean that we're to set it aside as secondary. Rather, as I'm going to argue, it's only when we understand Hannah's prayer as a poem that is embedded in its narrative context and not simply added to it that we can fully appreciate its function within the book. And to demonstrate this, it's going to be necessary to consider the poem first as a work in its own right, because that's what the text does for it. Second, to reflect on its function within the book of Samuel, in which it establishes the key motif of the reversal of fortunes that runs through the book. And then from that, it will be possible to see how the poem's embedded nature impacts the book as a whole and will be generative for the ethics that it's going to develop. So three passes uh, are going to be necessary, uh, which means I won't be able to do some of the close textual work that John did in his paper. So first of all, on reading Hannah's prayer as a distinct poem. So the first step in this reading process is to say, well, this is a discrete text. It probably recognises that in literary terms, this is a work that is distinctive from the context in which it's now found. As a piece of complex poetry, uh, this text poses numerous questions, uh, only a small number of which can actually be addressed in this paper. Indeed, even the surrounding text's own designation of this poem as a prayer might be questioned if we operate on a narrow definition of this is something spoken by a human to God, since in fact much of the text is in fact spoken to a listening audience, with only a very small portion addressed to God. This is perhaps why the poem is often referred to as Hannah's Song in the secondary literature, and you'll notice that was the title I was originally using until I decided that, given that the text never actually calls it that, that I'd go for Hannah's Prayer, but be that as it may, uh, we'll live with both titles for the moment. Um, the interesting thing, of course, is that she is never said to have sung, which will be an interesting contrast with the other major poems in Samuel. But the task of treating this poem as a discrete text needs to begin by noting precisely that the poem does not self-define any genre. And of course, the categories of song and prayer would not themselves be mutually contradictory. Therefore, any genre label we give it is something that emerges from the process of reading. So both of the established designations, song and prayer, can be supported to some extent from within the text. The elements of rejoicing which mark the poem's opening, notice the verbs, uh, alat, ramach, samach in verse 1, are consistent with a song, even if they don't require it. But God is addressed directly only at two points in the poem, in the last word of verse 1 and in the middle of verse 2, and then only by a pronominal suffix. The rest of the poem speaks about God, naming him nine times, but it doesn't address him. So, should we speak of this poem as a prayer, as a song, or as something else? Well, we've already observed that prayer and song are not necessarily to be set in opposition to one another, but it's also the case that the genre we assign to a text shapes our reading of it. 
The simplest option is simply to describe this text as a poem, since its poetic features are easily recognized, especially the concentration of parallel units here. And this has the benefit of staying with elements that the text presents in its form. But of course, it doesn't take us very far because anyone who reads the Psalms, for example, quickly knows that there are quite a variety of different types of poems uh, that we find in the Hebrew Bible, even if we decide that Gunkel's classifications are far too strict and don't always work. Uh, and they don't. That the Lord is addressed at only two points doesn't prevent it from being a prayer because an interchange between addressees is not uncommon in the Psalms. So, for example, in Psalm 30, there are shifts between addressing the Lord in verses 2 to 4, verse 11 to 13, and a congregation of some sort in verses 5 to 10. So the interchange seen in this poem can be seen elsewhere. What separates this poem from others is the extent to which this feature occurs, since elsewhere the various audiences tend to receive a more or less equal amount of attention. However, that the Lord is addressed directly at two points would still permit the designation prayer, even if it's not one that the Lord, sorry, if it's more one that the Lord overhears rather than being uh, primarily directed to him. In particular, these points of direct address to the Lord occur near the beginning of the poem, which leads to the designation of it as a prayer. But that we can consider it as a prayer, of course, doesn't prevent it from being a song. Here the evidence is more inferential than for labelling it as a prayer. And this is because none of the words associated with songs in Hebrew occur within the poem. But again, comparison with various psalms show that this would not prevent this poem from being considered as a song. To take only one example, Psalm 4 likewise contains no vocabulary that would lead us to suppose it's a song. However, its superscription includes the note, and this is commonly interpreted as referring to some form of musical leadership, something that in this instance would seem to be confirmed by the additional notes that it was a big niot with stringed instruments, it's a mizmor, a psalm, both of which make some form of explicit musical association. So the absence of vocabulary to associate with singing doesn't rule out the traditional designation. Moreover, as noted, the exuberant language with, with, with which the palm opens is not inconsistent with this being a song. Nevertheless, a first reading of the poem may need a clear, clearer designation of how it presents itself than the now traditional label in scholarship might suggest. Now, given that there has been no settled designation for the poem in the history of research, and Walter uh, Dieffrank in his commentary uh, has a large number of pages where he goes through all the various suggestions and says, so it's not clear. Um, in German, obviously, but nonetheless, um, it's there. Most notably, though, attention, I think, needs to be focused on that which is central to the poem, but actually hasn't been prominent in its discussion. That is, the bulk of the poem is making statements about the Lord, even if some opening comments are directed to him. The poem thus presents itself as primarily a series of declarations about the Lord that are directed to an audience rather than as a speech to the Lord. That there is some bifurcation of address means that this is the language of worship in which the Lord is addressed, but that also there is a wider group who are meant to hear and thus to learn about the Lord. We might therefore describe this as a didactic praise poem which is nowhere near as catchy as a song, I'll grant you, um, which integrates testimony with declarations about the Lord. Um, 
that's never going to catch on as a form critical label, but I think it works. The language about the Lord is predominantly expressed as praise, but it moves through first, second, and third person in sequence within the poem in order to refine its didactic goals. We can trace this movement fairly simply. In verses one and two, the poet speaks in the first person, providing reasons for exaltation. Now, this still involves some third person declarations about the Lord, but this is because the testimonial element needs to recount why the poet can offer praise while addressing the Lord. This shifts grammatically in verse three, which employs the second person plural in a pair of negated admonitions. The use of the plural here thus distinguishes it from the second person singular in the preceding verses and makes clear that another audience is presupposed. Although the balance of this psalm is expressed in the third person describing the Lord's acts, all of these elements flow from the negated admonitions in verse 3. Hence, although the opening verses can assume that the Lord is in effect overhearing the balance of the poem, verses 3 to 10 are primarily spoken to an audience who is present and who need to know about the Lord's acts and through them come to some understanding of his character. Now, this audience is told that they are not to multiply guilty speech, and the reasons for this are found in both the testimony of the poet and also more thoroughly in the summary of ways in which the Lord acts. Uh, and these elements are tied together through the use of the word horn at the beginning and end uh, of the poem, so that the poet's experience is consistent with the Lord's wider actions, which are described through the poem of the raising up of the weak and the bringing down of the powerful. None of this necessarily prepares the reader of the poem, though, for the introduction of the king in verse 10. Indeed, that the Lord judges the ends of the earth might suggest that he has no need of any human figure to achieve his purposes. Yet surely this is the rhetorical surprise that is sprung by the poem. At no point has it indicated how the Lord brings down the powerful. We know that the Lord has acted for the poet, and we know that the Lord has characteristic ways of dealing with this world, but only now do we know that he acts through his king. The Lord has a way of conducting politics, and that politics is meant to be representative of the Lord's character. Any king who hears this poem is reminded of how they are to conduct themselves. As I said, there's a lot more we can say, but we'll need to pass on. What is this poem doing within the context of the book of Samuel? Well, consideration uh, of at least some of this poetics. Let's just read it as a discrete text, but I want to read it as an embedded text. And our next concern is to place it within Samuel. And with Watts, I want to describe this as an example of inset poetry, a poem which stands out from the prose which surrounds it. And he notes that such poems typically occur near the end of a plot sequence, uh, although I think they have a far greater role in setting up uh, succeeding narratives than he tends to recognize. Now, curiously, as I said, given the designation of this poem as a song in the literature, um, the other poems in Samuel all include language of uh, singing. So uh, when David comes home from slaying Goliath, and for our purposes we are not arguing, asking the question who killed Goliath, it was David for today, um, David, the women are singing and dancing. Um, when uh, David has his lament over Abner, there is music that is associated with it. When David laments over Saul and Jonathan, the kinah uh, involves some form of music. 
in David's uh, song in 2 Samuel 22. Well, he uttered the words of this song, which I think we can take as clear evidence that we are meant to think that it is, well, a song. Um, whilst uh, uh, 2 Samuel 23, 1-7, David's last words, uh, is he the sweet singer of Israel? Probably not that, but there's clearly some association with music going on at that particular point. All of which actually makes the fact that Hannah's prayer is not called a song, uh, to me, a fairly interesting thing to observe. But the introduction to the poem has been careful to characterise it, uh, now within Samuel, at least, primarily as a prayer. Prayer is the frame with which we are now to read it. And the interesting thing here, of course, is that Hannah speaks. Before she was silent, and she has gone from silence to a deluge of words. And this actually prepares us for a technique that the authors of Samuel are going to use. So in Samuel's initiation narrative in 1 Samuel chapter 3, we are told that the word of the Lord was red. Yakar. We barely have this word for the first half of the chapter. And yet after Samuel's initiation, we have 14 instances of Darah in this chapter, so that by the end of that chapter, which is chapter 418, the word of Yahweh, the word of the Lord, came to all Israel. We have this shift which takes place, and Hannah's prayer that she prayed and said uh, matches this structure. That Hannah's prayer shows signs of being carefully embedded, of course, means that there are good reasons for thinking about the embedded nature of the other principal poems in Samuel, and we, we can't actually take time to uh, look at that, but each of them uh, in various ways does make connections uh, with the text which surrounds it. Perhaps the most important element of Hannah's prayer, though, that is developed in the subsequent narrative is the reversal of fortunes motif, which we have noted is there. And I want to briefly note the linkage of these themes across the book and their climax in the Samuel conclusion of 2 Samuel 21 to 24. The theme of the reversal of fortunes, where the powerful are brought down and the weak raised up, is an important one within Samuel. Uh, we see it in Hannah's story, um, where she is the, word, the one who is childless and she has a child. We see Eli as the one who is powerful, who is brought down. We see Saul as the one who is powerful and who is brought down. So we have this image constantly of those who are in power being brought down, those who are lowly, Saul initially presents himself as lowly, certainly Samuel is initially presented as lowly, David is the youngest of the brothers who is raised up. So we have this structure um, which runs through the book. The Lord springs down, the Lord shows himself the powerful judge of the ends of the earth. But more than this, the embedding is also a deliberate way of picking up language which runs across the books of Samuel. So when uh, in 1 Samuel 7 at Mizpah, Samuel engages in some form of water ceremony, the Philistines are lining up to attack. But in this instance, at Israel's point of weakness, the text is very clear to say that the Lord is the one who thunders from heaven and the Philistines are defeated. And we note the Niphal uh, is used here to avoid any implication that Israel has done it themselves. The promise of the Lord who thunders to overcome his enemies is demonstrated there. But that, in fact, picks up the language of thunder, which is part of um, the prayer itself. Hannah's prayer talks about how the Lord will thunder from the heavens and defeat his enemies, and that's what we see in 1 Samuel 7. 
But we also know that when Penina used to vex Hannah, it was to the point of thunder. Now, most English translations find a far more idiomatic way of uh, expressing that, but this relatively unusual word is, is being deliberately placed um, throughout the text here. Uh, the Lord is thundering. And it's interesting that the only other instance of thunder, uh, 1 Samuel 12, where Samuel asks for thunder is a different um, language, uh, occurs in uh, David's song in 2 Samuel 22, where he reflects on how the Lord sent from on high and drew, drew him up from many waters. So again, the uh, spatial language that's there. Um, David's experience within this song is then able to be generalised in the observation that the Lord saves a humble people but brings down the haughty. Uh, and again, we have this language of the thunder from heaven, which is part of that. Now, David's song, of course, is said to have been spoken on the day that the Lord delivered him from all his enemies and from Saul. Within the book, it's a reflection on how the reversal of fortunes motif has been experienced by David, acknowledging that David came to reign as king only because of the Lord's work on his behalf. But David's rise to power is itself part of a repeating pattern within Samuel, where the powerful are brought down. So as I said, Eli's family is brought down and loses the priesthood at Shiloh. Uh, Samuel initially looks like he's going to be the reliable priest, but it turns out that having sons is a very, very bad thing in the books of Samuel, and Samuel's sons are every bit as bad as Eli's. Wait till David meets his. Uh, and of course, Samuel's family won't succeed him. Saul becomes king. Um, he will ultimately be brought down. There is also the language of the rock uh, in Hannah's prayer, which is picked up again uh, in uh, David's uh, song in uh, 1 Samuel 22. Uh, and of course, in David's last words, where the Lord is spoken of as the rock of Israel. Again and again, what we find is that the language of Hannah's song is being echoed throughout the rest of the book of Samuel, and the motif in which that it establishes is also continually being echoed throughout the book. It had declared that the Lord had raised her horn and that he would do so for his king. Uh, and finally, just in terms of some of this language which is embedded, it's, it's worth noting that the word horn, keren, uh, occurs outside of Hannah's song and David's song, or Hannah's prayer and David's song, only at the anointing of David. Uh, Saul is anointed from a flask. David is anointed from a horn. And since it is the Lord who had raised Hannah's horn, I think it's clear from the wider narrative that there too um, the Lord is regarded as a horn of salvation, just as David will also celebrate. What I'm trying to suggest through this is that the authors of Samuel have embedded this text. It is not simply a late edition, but it is worked through within the text as a whole. And part of the reason for this, I'm going to suggest as in my third path, pass through uh, this particular text, is because it's fundamental to the ethics of Samuel. So what I've tried to explore so far is how Hannah's prayer provides an important grid for reading Samuel. We are to read it through this reversal of fortune's motif and, and the language keeps picking this up. And we've noted that when considered in its own right, the, function, uh, the poem functions to address an audience who hear the praise of the one who gives thanks to the Lord. But through this praise, the poem also instructs an undefined audience about the need to avoid arrogance because the Lord is the one who measures actions. 
This process of measuring actions leads to the Lord bringing down the powerful, raising up the weak, including the barren like Hannah. Hannah's own story thus becomes an example of how the Lord acts. However, as we've noted, the ways in which this poem is embedded with Samuel goes far beyond Hannah's own story. As such, it now functions both to conclude Hannah's story to that point and also to introduce the wider themes of bringing down the powerful and raising up the weak. Indeed, we can see that although Hannah's own story continues beyond this point, to uh, 1 Samuel uh, 2.21, her prayer has to be recorded at this point before she has other children because the key element is established after her dedication of Samuel, not after she has had six children in total. Beyond that, the careful range of verbal links established across the book through Leitwater mean that readers are continually brought back to the prayer as a means of evaluating events within it. Now, the possibilities of reading the narrative text of the Old Testament ethically has received some attention from Gordon Wenham. Narrative texts do pose difficulties for uh, readers, especially modern readers, who would really like the narratives to tell us that this was a bad thing, that you shouldn't do that, uh, or this was a good thing, and we're usually disappointed because it doesn't happen that way. But what Gordon Wenham has done is to develop a model that looks to those things that the narrative commends. Uh, though, as I said, this is seldom done through exact guidance, and we need wider awareness of the rest of the Hebrew Bible to understand those things. However, reading Hannah's prayer in the context of the book as a whole suggests that one of its key functions is to provide readers with an ethical framework with which to read the rest of the book, one that allows readers to see the particulars of each narrative while also seeing that the narrator of the finished book continues to commend certain ethical stances through Hannah. As is well known, the Old Testament's narrators generally prefer to show rather than tell. That is, they don't tend to make explicit ethical comments, even when modern readers often wish they would. But within Samuel, Hannah's prayer is given this role, and this goes well beyond its function of providing a first mention of kingship. As is typical of embedded poems, the narrator allows this one to be voiced by a character. This allows readers to see and feel the resolution of Hannah's pain from being childless through her own prayer and praise. But it now leaves open the question, who is it that is addressed by the bulk of this prayer? Who is this you plural that from verse 3 is being told not to behave in certain ways because of the actions of the Lord? If this was a pre-existing poem, as seems likely, then within the temple those addressed would have been worshippers who were there. They're reminded of the Lord's acts in the reversal of fortunes and also his provision for king. But within Samuel, that is no longer the audience directly addressed. Hannah's prayer still addresses the Lord, but the secondary audience addressed directly from 1 Samuel 2.3 is no longer a worshipping congregation, at least if this was a, a, a psalm that was used, encountering the poem alone. Instead, it's now those who encounter the books of Samuel who, would, who are addressed directly. It's as if the author is like a, a, an actor who breaks the fourth wall to speak directly to the audience. They encounter Hannah's story, and in the prayer, they are now the ones addressed, told not to speak arrogantly. They need to learn this because of how the Lord acts, bringing the powerful down and raising the weak. At first, we might uh, be happy to explore this through the vexatious speech previously used by Hannah. 
Uh, and this conclusion would allow for the particularity of this story while also seeing that there is something generalizable from it. But the use of Leitwörter, which can continually connect parts of the larger narrative of Samuel, which include its main poems, each of which is also an embedded poem, pushes readers to realize that Hannah's prayer has provided the narrative with a mechanism for commenting on almost all aspects of the larger story. It is this which makes the poem so unusual within the Old Testament, for I don't believe, and I've tried to look at all of them, that there is any other embedded poem which is given the importance of Hannah's prayer. That the narrator then uses two embedded poems from David to provide a closing reflection on the themes established by Hannah's prayer points to the importance given to this poem. Readers have been assured that this is how the Lord acts, and Hannah's own story has demonstrated this. But the wider narrative also consistently shows that when the powerful forget that the Lord brings down the powerful, the Lord does give strength to the weak. Moreover, when anyone forgets that power is by definition not something to be grasped, then it is the Lord who brings them down. This is true for Penina, for Eli and his family, for Samuel and for his family, for Saul and for his family, and perilously closely for David and his family. David may emerge as the one who can claim an enduring covenant, but the narrative shows how close he goes to losing all of this. In the end, for Samuel, David is the king introduced by Hannah's prayer, the one brought from a relatively lowly position to a place of power while others are brought down. Readers addressed through Hannah's prayer are thus reminded not to exalt themselves, but rather to humble themselves. However, they do not humble themselves under the king. They humble themselves under the Lord because a king only has power if the Lord gives it. This is as true of David as anyone else. And indeed, this continues to provide an ethical framework for modern readers of Samuel as scripture. Thank you.